Don't you believe me? I believe you. Then why don't you tell me why you're acting so funny? Oh, it's nothing, darling. But is it possible, Mother, for someone to hit you hard like that? Real loud and hard. And not hurt you at all? It is possible, dear. For someone to hit you. Hit you hard. Welcome to the September 27th, 2018 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. That clip is from the 1954 film adaptation of the Broadway musical Carousel. The famous production by Rodgers and Hammerstein has a revival on Broadway right now. But as you heard, not everything has adapted well to our times. And to help us understand the impact of the Me Too movement in the national theater scene and on productions like this, I invited staff writer Zachary Small to give us an update. Hi, Zachary. Hi, thanks for the introduction. I think it's really kind of interesting to hear clips like that and think back as what the arts community was sort of telling the American public, right? Right, and not much has changed, unfortunately, in the years since, in the decades since. When researching the Me Too movement in the arts, it got me thinking about the performing arts, of course, and these areas of the discipline where, in the job description, actors are basically expected to be in these very intimate moments of sex and violence. And how exactly the performing arts are now dealing with the Me Too movement is extremely representative of, I guess, where we are in this political conversation and political climate. Totally. And of course, September has been a really defining moment for me, too, because, you know, this month, needless to say, Bill Cosby just received three to 10 years in prison. And he was the first probably high profile Me Too case that's really sort of resulted in this kind of sentencing. And meanwhile, of course, Judge Brett Kavanaugh, um, well, he has his chances of a lifetime seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. And Of course, outside of the legal system, the Me Too movement continues to unearth all these different stories of abuse and power. So in this episode, you spoke to someone who has their finger on the pulse of the Me Too movement in the theater community, correct? Right. So I really wanted to understand more of the backstory of how reporters are investigating the Me Too movement in the arts and why. So I sat down with American Theatre Magazine's senior editor, Deep Tren, who has spearheaded the publication's effort to report about sexual misconduct within the performing arts. In fact, the magazine's entire September issue was devoted to stories of survivors. As a starting point to our conversation, Tren and I discussed how the myth of the male genius still prevails in the performing arts and how it has led to underreported allegations of sexual misconduct in the industry. Joining me in the podcast studio today is Deep Tren, senior editor at American Theatre Magazine. Recently, the publication released a September issue, which is entirely devoted to questions of sexual misconduct in the theatre world. Tren has led the conversation about the Me Too movement in the performing arts, which is also known as Hashtag Theater 2. And the issue is largely a result of her month-long investigation into the topic. Hello and welcome to the studio. Hello, thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. Great. So what really struck me about this September issue and reading some of these articles and the research you've done is just how rampant issues of sexual abuse and harassment is in the performing arts scene. 
What struck you initially when you started this research? Well, I mean, and first of all, I, I just want to say that even though it's rampant in the performing arts scene, it's rampant in society just because we do live in a patriarchal structure. Right. So uh, unfortunately, when you take that patriarchal structure and you put it into a venue like the performing arts, which is, you know, traditionally and still is white male dominated, mostly by straight men and women and people of color usually occupying lower level tiers and you have like a lot of hierarchy within it, like there is a lot of opportunity for power abuse just because the lines I think in the performing arts are so blurred between like artist process versus inappropriate behavior. Like you can touch each other's boobs in the performing arts and people would think it's okay. Right, of course. And I think a lot of those structures to talk about how to handle sexual content in plays and in musicals just wasn't there for so long. Exactly. That still, I think- well, it still isn't. Right. right, and I was going to say, I think an older generation might not have that vocabulary and a younger generation is not yet in a position of power to provide that language. Yeah, and and provide that code of conduct. I mean, Hyperallergic is is a, a publication that focuses on all the arts, and I feel like you almost know like the stereotype of the male, you know, genius, and he has to be mean to everyone and yell at people and throw things because he's so emotional, mm -hmm. and that's how he's you know doing his art. And I think like we're, we're finally at a point where we can just say that. Can I cuss on this podcast? Of like, course. Yeah, like that stereotype is bullshit. It's bullshit. And, and it leaves room for so much abuse and so much like tolerance of just shitty behavior. Do you think, was this a really risky thing for a publication like American Theater to do? There's not that much theater journalism happening anymore. You really have the New York Times and American Theater is one of, if not the only theater focused publications out there that's still in print. Yes, that's still in print. And that will actually take the time to like go deeper into stories and talk about issues like, you know, diversity and mm -hmm. pay inequity and power abuse. Right. And in my time, they've been really trying hard to just push the magazine and our reporters to just like ask harder questions of the artists so right. that arts journalism isn't just like a promotional tool so that the artists can just do whatever they want with us. Right. Well, I don't know why people would want to read press releases for their news. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and yet here we are most of the time. Right. I mean, it's, I think it's really risky and frankly very brave to do that kind of reporting that needs to be done to help people and help the future of theater to thrive. And I'm wondering, when you're reaching out to these theaters and investigating your stories, how have theaters responded to the allegations? There's been a variety of responses. Uh, some theaters, like the Long Wharf Theater mm -hmm. in Connecticut, whose artistic director was accused of assaulting and harassing multiple women, mm -hmm. and then they subsequently fired him. That theater was very open in the process, saying, please come up and tour the theater with us. Mm -hmm. And here are the documents that we presented to our staff that is a promise of what we want to do. Right. Like some theaters are very transparent about their process. Other theaters are a little bit more reserved and they're not as open to letting outside voices into how what it is that they're doing in their institutions. And so mm -hmm. it varies. It's not an easy conversation for anyone to have. Right, and something that's important to know about a lot of these theaters Long Wharf to a lesser extent now, but other theaters like the Alley Theater, they mm -hmm. have companies. So the actors in these companies are employed directly by the theater, and yes. that is their livelihood. Yes. So coming out with these reports is more than just you know ruining a relationship with one person. You're ruining your livelihood. Exactly. And a lot of these theaters, I mean, they're, these are all like 
all the theaters are reported on, they're Tony-winning theaters with multi-million-dollar budgets, and right. they employ hundreds of people a year. And those institutions, like they're usually like the biggest game in town in their respective market. And so, unless you're an artist who's willing to move once you ruin that relationship with that theater, like it's a lot to put your livelihood on the line in that way. So let's talk about the Alley Theater a little bit more. So mm -hmm. off the top of your head, do you remember what their yearly budget is? It's around like 17 million. Right. So they had an issue. They had an allegation of verbal and sexual abuse leveraged against Gregory Boyd, who was the Alley Theater's artistic director. So this yes. is a theater that's run for 28 years. They mm -hmm. are a Tony-winning theater. And after these allegations come about, Gregory Boyd leaves and gets a severance package of $383,000. Is that right? Yes. Right. So what happens after that? Uh, what happens after that is the theater does like a cultural assessment and they say mm -hmm. we promise to do, you know, X, Y, Z things to make our culture better. But what they haven't done is they never explicitly said this person left because he was accused of harassment. All of the quotes to the press, including in my article, said... Mm -hmm he left because it was time to retire. Mm. But the thing is, when someone retires, they don't get a severance package. Right. Because you, you only get that kind of package when your contract is cut short and he has signed like a five-year contract right. two years prior. And so there's certain things that don't add up, but when it comes to being a reporter, the complicated thing is, you know that there's something deeper, mm -hmm. but you don't, you don't have the sourcing to prove it. Right. And you don't have the paperwork to prove it, frankly. Right. And in these more insular communities that we find ourselves in, it's hard to find a source. It's hard to find a source that will go on record. Exactly. There are anonymous sources. And it's not like I want to say that it's unhelpful because it's good for me to know that there's something deeper. Mm -hmm. But the most frustrating thing I found for me as a reporter is to know that there's something. Right. There's, you know unanswered questions and no one is around to answer them for me. And for non-theater lovers, it might be simple to say, well, this is just an one industry. Like, what is the big deal? Mm -hmm. But it's just so small and people just grab onto the little opportunities there are like so fiercely that it's, right. it's understandable. Right. It, it might be helpful for our listeners here who are non-theater people to know that in a lot of these early theater performances that people will do, you know, right out of college, they're maybe getting $50 for mm -hmm. a performance in a month's worth of rehearsal. This is not yeah. an industry built on money. Yet coming back to the Alley Theater and Gregory Boyd, the question is, where is this $383,000 severance package coming from? Where do you think that money comes from for a nonprofit theater? Oh, I, I can't responsibly guess right. where that money would be coming from. Right. It's it's definitely difficult to suspect. I mean, I definitely have heard in the rumor mill that, you know, it can come from boards. It can come from these bigger donor structures, which to me is kind of scary because it implies a lot of complicity. We hear rumors in the visual arts all the time about how famous male artists have taken advantage of their assistants and models. Chuck Close is one artist that comes to mind, of course, our reporting as well as the reporting of the New York Times and the Huffington Post really sort of talked about Chuck Close and the implications. But hearing about these cases from the theater community, 
It's clear that survivors of sexual assault are making a life-changing decision when they come forward with their allegations. Right, and in a community as small as the performing arts, there's a real social and economic calculation that survivors need to make before they can report sexual misconduct and really have their life in order. It's an unfortunate reality of the business that needs to be changed sooner rather than later. That's why I was so interested in learning more about how Deep gathered these stories. Yeah, I imagine it's so difficult because, I mean, we've had that uh, we've had that experience ourselves here at Hyperallergic. People will often tell you stories, but they don't go on record. So I'm really interested to hear that. Definitely. And I don't know if that's really a part of the story that's necessarily as widely reported as the allegations, although it's obviously important in figuring out this complex matrix of how we're hearing about Me Too movement stories, how they're reported, and mm -hmm. ultimately how readers are believing them. There's a lot that goes into that. And it's especially important in the arts ecosystem where there are virtually no other publications devoted to the performing arts outside American Theatre Magazine. So when Trend took up this idea, this editorial strategy, she was taking a significant risk in publishing the stories. And so often when we read the results of these investigations, it's important to think about the mechanics behind the reporting of the Me Too movement. There was this anonymous source that talked to me about the Alley Theater, mm -hmm. and that person basically said, I worked there and I knew this behavior was wrong, and I didn't say anything about it. None mm -hmm. of us said anything about it. We were all complicit in this because we just we were just so afraid. Right. Because it's just so hard to, like, as you said, Zach, you start off, you get $50 a performance, but then you eventually get to a place where you get a living wage. Mm -hmm. And you know how hard it is to get a living wage in a theater, and it takes a lot for a person to give it up. You know, one of my sources, like mm. her name's Emily Trask, and she's the one who broke the story. Right. And who was the first one who named Gregory Boyd as an abuser. And she said, like, he called her the C word multiple times in front of a room full of people. Right. And no one said anything. And it's like, that is, that's like the culture that we're all living in. And so, like, what, mm -hmm. what will it take to, like, shake people out of that fear? And that's the big question that I don't really think anyone knows the answer to. Right. And I, I mean, it's, it's really an existential question for the arts as well. You know, mm -hmm. if these things are happening and we're supposed to be, you know, called to a, a higher caliber of interactions with people, what does it mean when we can't, you know, come to the table and admit our faults, right? And admit yeah. wrongdoing and really think about those questions. A another story that I just wanted to touch on, though, mm -hmm. really briefly, is this story out of Minneapolis with the Children's Theater Company. Okay. So that was one that also caught my eye for some of the financial dealings there. So the story was that um, decades after a case of child sex abuse, right? Mm -hmm. The artistic director of the Children's Theater Company in Minneapolis, Jason McLean, was investigated for these claims. And he fled the country to Mexico? Is yes. Is that right? Yes. And the report said that he spent $1.5 million on real estate in Mexico after fleeing the country. Well, the American dollar goes a lot further in Mexico, right? Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, I think it just gets back to these questions of, you know, what are the structures and what is the money behind allowing predominantly men to do this and to have these lives and be able to also escape authorities and escape responsibility. Right. Well, it kind of reminds me of, you know, the Met Opera and mm -hmm. James Levine. Right. And they have somehow been able to pay off mm -hmm. multiple people. Like, where is all this money coming from if the nonprofit is apparently broke and <laughs> there's no money anywhere to, like, pay people decent salaries? Right. And how do you find 
the victims of sexual assault or harassment, the people in their community, have you talked to any of your sources about how do you recover after this? How do you come back together and pick up the pieces? Right. Well, the, yeah, there's another story in the issue that's called Theater's Silence Breakers, where we basically profiled like, six people who mm-hmm. did come out to the press and say, this is what happened to me. And basically their testimony like had consequences. It got some people fired. That's what I was curious about, because as you're saying, Zach, like what protects these men? And I think, you know, it's patriarchy that protects these men. Mm. Like whenever a person speaks up against an abuser and if that abuser is a man, then there's always a question, oh, they must be lying or mm-hmm. they must be in this for the money. The social instinct isn't to believe the victims. Right. And so I wanted to know, based on this system, because this is the thing that keeps happening over and over again of people being abused and then talking, speaking out about it and then being asked, well, what were you wearing? What did you do? I wanted to know, like, what compels someone to take that kind of risk? And then what are the consequences for their career? And I think what I've noticed is it's trauma. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, these people have been living with these stories for like, like 10 years at some point. And to live with that kind of trauma, not be able to talk about it to anyone is like... Like Kim Rubenstein said, who, you know, she was the one who named Gordon Elstein of the Long Wharf. She said, mm. like, at some point, I just felt like a glass of water that was overflowing. I couldn't stay silent anymore. They knew these men were still working and they didn't want that damage to be perpetuated. And right. so I think a lot of the times it's like almost like a selfless thing of knowing if I don't say anything and this person keeps on doing this thing, like, who knows how many other people that could be damaged from this. Right. And that's always the question and one of the things that you kind of have to assume in these cases is that if it's happened to one person and this is a director or anyone really in a person uh, in a place of authority they've probably Mm -hmm. done it to someone else exactly thanks zachary that was really interesting and it really resonates because it looks like different aspects of the arts are all confronting the realities of the me too movement right so do you want to join me for some headlines as we wrap this up great First off, artist Ai Weiwei says he's moving back to the United States. You got that right. (laughs) The Chinese dissident plans to move to upstate New York, where his son can receive an education. He adds, New York City is quite exciting, but not for the old men like me. We walk too slow on the street, you know. As someone who walks really quickly, I appreciate Ai Weiwei's <laughs> honesty. I also have spoken to a lot of other artists about this huge move to the Hudson River Valley. So many upstate. people. Everyone. I mean, Marina Abramovich is already there. So. That's right. But I mean, she's just one of so many. There's been a huge movement towards. And maybe it's generational. You know, at a certain age, I think this happens quite often. Doctors in Berlin have confirmed the likelihood that Pussy Riot member Piet Verzelov was poisoned. He was airlifted to the city after being hospitalized in Russia, after his fellow artists said he had been exhibiting symptoms including vision loss and weakness. He's expected to recover. Shocking, I can't. I mean, obviously people are making associations with a lot of the Russian um, poisoning, Mm -hmm. so let's see what that becomes. El Museo del Barrio in New York has reopened after 10 months of extensive renovations. The Uptown Museum has undergone $4.85 million in upgrades granted by city funds, including improved lighting and climate control systems. I can't wait to check it out. And the Spanish government will grant the Prado Museum in Madrid 
30 million euro, or roughly 35 million US dollars, over the next four years of expansion. Norman Foster and Carlos Rubio are the architects responsible for the project and will be adding 27,000 additional square feet of exhibition space. The museum is expected to raise an additional 10 million euro or 12 million dollars for the renovation. Is there anything Norman Foster hasn't designed yet? <laughs> I don't know, but I have to say 27,000 square feet of exhibition space doesn't seem that much. For in, such a big museum, you know, what is it? The, Met, the Metropolitan Museum has a million right. square feet. So I don't know. I would hope they would have planned a little bit more. Sir David Ache, and talking of an architect who's done everything, <laughs> um, of Ache Associates will design the new Princeton University Art Museum in collaboration with Cooper Robertson as executive architect. Amazing and much needed because, you know, I love the Princeton Art Museum, but it definitely needs more space. It needs an update. Yep. And the new school's Vera List Center for Art and Politics has received a $5 million gift from the dealer Jane Lombard. The funds are allotted towards the center's $25,000 prize, now called the Jane Lombard Prize for Art and Social Justice. And the prize is awarded biennially to a social justice-minded artist or group. The 2018 20 winner will be announced at the center's biennial forum on October 4th, which this year is titled, If Art is Politics. Love that. Manuel Oliver, an artist who lost his 17-year-old son, Joaquin, in the tragic shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, has created a series of 10 bronze sculptures titled, The Last Lockdown, Tackling Gun Violence in Schools. Oliver worked with Giffords, a gun control group, to create the 3D printed sculptures, drawing references to the rise of print at home guns. It's a scary development. Mm -hmm. The top of each desk has a carving reading a different stat about gun violence, including 22 kids are shot every day in America. It's just heartbreaking. Can't believe it. New information has surfaced about the origin of Leonardo da Vinci's infamous Salvador Mundi. So $450 million, you'll remember it. It turns out this painting spent decades in Louisiana, of all places, under the care of the Hendry family, unbeknownst of its massive worth. I can't believe they must be right now kicking themselves. <laughs> so it turns out the work was inherited from an aunt, Minnie Stanfield Kuntz, who reportedly purchased the work in London for, get this, 45 pounds or roughly $60 in 1958. Maybe it's still worth that much. <laughs> it could, I, I doubt it, but maybe. <laughs> Depending on the attribution. That's right. Knows? The Hendrys sold the work in 2005 for $10,000. That's mm. quite an appreciate. Oh, wow. Heartbreaking. Its buyers, who are old master dealers Robert Simon and Alexander Parrish, were responsible for its reauthentication as a Leonardo. I know, I know what to say. It's really the one that got away. <laughs> so, thanks for joining me, Zachary, Thank and you. thanks for listening. This week, I want to send a special thanks to Miserable Chillers for providing the music to this week's episode. I'm Harag Vartanian the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.